0: Wisconsin voters flipped the balance of power.
1: They were ready to put aside the partisanship and put aside the extremism.
0: After one of the most contentious state Supreme Court elections in American history. My opponent is a serial liar. She's disregarded judicial ethics. She's demeaned the judiciary with her behavior. This week on Open Record, The political left takes over the state's highest court, while the right scores a crucial win in the Senate. From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I'm joined today by Fox 6 political reporter, Jason Calvey. Hey, Jason.
1: Hey, great to be on.
0: Thanks, Brian. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, April 5th, for release on Thursday, April 6th, 2023. And progressives across the country are celebrating what is, politically speaking, a monumental win for Janet Protosewitz as she is elected to a 10-year seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. But Jason, this, while it was a contentious election and there was so much money spent on it, it really wasn't even close. Was, was that a
1: surprise? I think it was a surprise. You know, we saw Janet Protosawitz, the progressive candidate, get 56 percent of the vote last night. We saw Dan Kelly, the conservative, get 44 percent. So there was a 12 point difference between the two candidates. And in our state, we've seen so many elections that have been razor thin when it comes to the governor's race in 2022, when it comes to the presidential races in 2020 and 2016, the Senate races. Uh. All across the board in Wisconsin, we're used to these nail biters and and this one, there was so much interest and outside money and campaign cash and surrogates flooding the state for the last month, two months, three months. Um, that we were expecting or I was expecting that it would have been a little bit closer to this. But at the end of the night, a 12 point difference, a 12 point lead for Janet what's the progressive.
0: I mentioned it was a contentious election. And we saw obviously some real clear evidence of that in the concession speech of Daniel Kelly. Um, uh, there, were, I saw some really strong reactions to that, too. People uh, tweeting about uh, uh, about that. Can you talk a little bit about what Dan Kelly had to say in his concession speech?
1: Yeah, it was it was very very intense. Um, during his concession speech last night, we were actually broadcasting it live on Fox Six News, and he said that uh, that he he called his competitor. Janet Prosewicz a serial liar. He said um, he didn't have a worthy opponent to concede to, uh, so he he referred to her as the serial liar to that she was an unworthy opponent that he she wasn't worthy to to concede to. Um, these were the things that he said in in his concession speech last night. He said that the campaign was about, in his words, the rule of law, which is what he said he was going to support, and the rule of Janet, which is what he said his opponent was going to do. And he said the people of Wisconsin voted for the rule of Janet. So he really had critical words, not only for the voters, but also for his opponent in words that were really um, stunning to hear live on uh, on our on our ear last night.
0: I feel like in sort of the history of politics, it's Often that when the concession comes around after even a very heated and oftentimes negative uh, campaign uh, between two candidates, especially when they start to to really go negative, that's the moment where you'll hear the um, I want to wish my opponent well or, you know, I appreciate the support that, that, you know, people gave me. It's not often we hear things like my opponent isn't even worthy. Um, I don't have anyone to concede to. They're a serial liar. She disregarded judicial ethics. How unusual is a speech like that in a concession speech?
1: Yeah, I haven't. I haven't heard one quite like this. Now, I did have a flashback to 2020 when when former President Donald Trump was speaking after uh, the polls had closed across the United States, and you know his speech there was was stunning as well. In that he, you know, he said, "In fact, we did win the election." That was what he said uh, when those polls closed. His advisors had urged him not to say that, but he he did say that. He made that claim, that uh, false claim uh, after the election results. So, I mean, after 2020, you know, there there have been these situations of like that that speech. It wasn't a concession speech as well for the former president. Um, so so this one, while it was unusual. Usual and stunning. Um, it, it, it's sort of, I guess, a barometer of where we are with politics right now. Where you know, where where you see even during the debate between these two candidates, um, the debate was tense and and uh, you know, no the, the no handshaking. Things that we that are usually done in the past. Um, you know, c- congratulating. You know having some nice words maybe for the opposition voters um things like that that uh, that we are not seeing any longer in politics
0: now one of the reasons this was one of the most highly observed contests in the country, not just in the state of Wisconsin is because a couple of things number one we uh, it wasn't that long ago conservatives had a five to two uh, advantage on the state Supreme Court and really controlled uh, that that body. Um, this flips the control to a four to three majority for progressive or, or liberal candidates or liberal uh, Supreme Court justices. Um, and, and obviously that has huge potential uh, law and policy. Implications? Can you talk about the significance of that flip to a four to three majority for uh, for left-leaning Supreme Court justices?
1: Yeah. So let's take a look back for 15 years. Conservatives have controlled the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So think about the various issues that have come before the Supreme Court, the most contentious issues in Wisconsin politics often will end up at the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And they rule on the state statutes as well as the state constitution and judge what is and what is not uh, coherent with, with the statute or with uh, with the constitution. And so thinking about controversial issues in the past, Act 10, um, think about recent uh, controversies like the safer at home. That's that was the Governor Evers and the health administration's uh, shutdown uh, of the state um, restrictions on on uh, public gatherings and things like that during the pandemic. Uh, remember the masks mandates. Uh, remember uh, election drop boxes. These are some of the things that the Supreme Court has ruled. Against uh, in recent years, so they they backed Act 10. They ruled against the shutdown. They ruled against the mask mandates. They ruled against election drop boxes. Uh, thinking about legislative maps. So right now in Wisconsin, Republicans have a. a Uh, almost a supermajority of the legislature. They don't have a supermajority in the assembly. They just won a supermajority in the state Senate last night. Uh, And so uh, these maps that we see, the legislative maps, they do favor Republicans. I mean, everybody could agree that they do favor Republicans in in this state. Um, And and those were also decided by Wisconsin, Wisconsin Supreme Court ruling. So again and again, when you look at all of these issues that impact daily life in Wisconsin, they often are precedent or, or rulings that are uh, that come down from the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Or when there's a big controversy, like I said, Act 10 or, or some of these things during the pandemic, they end up at the Wisconsin Supreme Court and they impact all of our lives moving forward. Now, that was 15 years of the conservative majority as of Janet Prosewitz now winning this election. She'll take her seat in August and then it will be flipped. We'll have that four to three. The progressives will have four members and the conservatives will have three. So it really flips the balance of power. And now moving forward, there are just so many issues that could be revisited. It's possible that somebody could file a new lawsuit challenging the legislative maps that give Republicans the advantage Janet Prosewitz during the campaign she said these legislative maps were rigged so it's very clear that um, that at least from her statements that she she feels that the current maps are are um, are rigged and Potential case could come. There's definitely a possibility. It's, it's very, very likely. I mean, everybody agrees that the Supreme Court's going to be ruling on the abortion, the abortion ban. So right now in Wisconsin, after Roe v. Wade's reversal, there's been an 1849 abortion ban that was revived and is now back on the books. The uh, Evers administration and Attorney General Josh Call uh, have have put out uh, have sued to stop uh, to block enforcement of this abortion ban. Uh, there's a couple different legal arguments that they're making there uh, in their lawsuit, but it's going to be going through state court. So its first step is the district court level. And so the briefs have been filed and there'll be oral arguments. Uh, This will be in court May 1st. So the, uh, the abortion ban will be at the initial stages in Wisconsin's court system May 1st. And then it's very likely that it will go up to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and now the progressives are controlling that court as of August of this year. And so, how are they going to rule on that moving forward? Well, pro- probably going to be at least more open to hearing those arguments that Attorney General Josh Call is making in, in his uh, challenge of the abortion ban.
0: Is there any any sense of how soon that issue could, in fact, end up before the Supreme Court, and is there any possibility that it could move quickly enough to get there before? Uh, Janet Protasewicz takes her seat on the court, or is this certain to be something that arrives there after August?
1: Probably after August, given the fact that uh, we've got the, that May. Uh, the May court hearing uh, at the district level, then there's the appeals court, and then the Supreme Court. Now, of course, you could make uh, an appeal directly to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and in the past, they have taken cases directly from the lower court and and skipping the appeals court. Um, But at this point, um, you know, it looks like that case is going to work its way through the court. And I guess if you are, you know, depending on what the ruling is at the district court, um, you know, you could go right to the Supreme Court, but, uh, I- at least right now it's possible that the timing could, um, could be post, uh could be post uh, Janet Protasiewicz taking her spot on the court.
0: Obviously, uh, many people who supported Janet Protasiewicz were people who want to see the, the uh, 1849 ban go away to see uh, at least some uh, form of legalized abortion come back in the state of Wisconsin. But just because she's won this race, as you pointed out, doesn't mean that switch automatically flips. Abortion didn't become legal today in the state of Wisconsin. This is still a process that's got to play out and come before the court, and the court would have to rule on that. But obviously, with that, with with the change in the
1: balance of power there, uh, I, I guess maybe many can see the writing on the wall. I think so. I mean, in a, of course, you know, when you talk to these judicial candidates, um, they on both sides, they were very careful with their language. But uh, when you talked with Dan Kelly um, and when you talk with Janet Prosewitz or when you heard her speak, you know, one of the things that that she would that she would say is, you know, and even in her campaign ads, she would talk about how her personal values are supporting of uh, abor- legalized abortion. That that was her personal values, and then the Kelly campaign would fire back and say, "Listen, you can't you can't tip your hat. You can't before you hear a case reveal." Uh, what's in your hand? You know you can't reveal what your thoughts are in a particular legal a- case until you've got the case in front of you. That's what the Kelly campaign, the 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 challenge that they made to Janet Prosiewicz for having these ads where she was talking about her personal values towards abortion. Um, so, and again, when you saw the national groups from both sides, so you had Planned Parenthood. Uh, you had um, other groups that, that support abortion investing heavily in this race. And then you also had groups that oppose abortion like Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America investing on behalf of Dan Kelly, the the Planned Parenthood groups uh, supporting Janet pro Saywood. So you saw all these national groups with tons of money flooding our state because they really felt like, depending on who wins this race, that that's that's going to really decide the future of this abortion ban in the state of Wisconsin. Whether or not that investment in those debates are fair, we'll see probably in a few months here when, when that case likely makes it to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And I mentioned the spending, these outside groups coming in. We saw $42 million flooding this Wisconsin Supreme Court race. That is now the most expensive Supreme Court race in American history. It shatters the, the previous record, which was 2004 in Illinois, that race had 15 million. So now that we're at above $42 million here in Wisconsin, we're not only breaking the record, but we're really shattering the record. Um, and according to Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, they're a group that kind of monitors campaign spending in Wisconsin. Um, they said that Protasewicz and her supporters, her allies, spent more than Kelly and his allies. So again, um, depending on on how you see things here um, but but Prosewitz in her campaign, they just had a lot more money out there uh, to to hit Kelly and they hit him very early. Uh, with the campaign ads uh, targeting him on issues like abortion, you, you mentioned Jason
0: uh, briefly the the, uh, the issue of a supermajority in the Senate, uh, S- state Senate District Eight. Well, well obviously, the, the sort of the, the big banner headline was Janet Protezewicz wins the uh, Supreme Court race. Um, this was a major race as well in terms of. Uh, a significant milestone for Republicans in the state Senate. Dan Canodal, the Republican candidate there, ekes out a win by a couple of percentage points and, and uh, uh, takes Senate District 8 for Republicans, which uh, gives Republicans a thirty-three or a, a 22 to 11, is that right, uh, seat advantage in, in the Senate, which is a super majority. What is the significance of that in uh, you know, the Wisconsin legislature?
1: So the Senate Republicans have this supermajority. The Assembly Republicans are two seats short of a supermajority. So if both chambers had a supermajority, then it would be possible that they could override the governor's veto with a, with two-thirds vote. But because they don't have it in the Assembly, they only have it in the Senate, they're, they're not going to by themselves be able to override a governor's veto. However... The Senate has other powers with the supermajority. One of which is to convict on an impeachment charge. For an impeachment to go forward in Wisconsin, and, and there, it's you know this this would be unprecedented. But if it goes forward in Wisconsin, then it takes a simple majority uh, of the Assembly to impeach to bring forward that charge, and then it goes just like in the United States uh, Congress, where you see the the House um, is the one who brings the impeachment charge forward, and then it's the Senate that decides whether to convict or not. And so what we would have here is the assembly with a similar majority could bring forward and to, to impeach, and then it would go to the Senate for the conviction. And now in order to convict the impeachment charge, it would be a two-thirds majority. So conceivably, if there was ever a situation where Republicans wanted to go forward with impeachment, they would have the votes now in the Senate on their own to impeach. And they can impeach a cabinet official. They can impeach the governor. They can impeach um, a, 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 a governmental official. And there's debates then, well, does that apply to to judges? Because there's another section that deals with, with judges. So there is a debate of whether or not the impeachment clauses here would also apply to to judges but at this point um you know this is just all hypothetical uh as far as what's going to move forward it's, it's hypothetical jason
0: but it's it's one of those where the votes are now there the the assembly has enough because it just needs the simple majority to bring some form of a, a impeachment charge and the senate needs the supermajority to convict republicans have that in both chambers the, the and you i say you say it's sort of just theoretical and it may well be But in the politics we're seeing today, is there some sense that crazier things have happened? I mean, it's almost like nothing's off the table anymore.
1: Right. And especially when you heard that speech from from Justice Kelly, which was very animated, very intense, uh, very condemning of Janet Persewicz, where he accused her of being a serial liar. Um, Is that sort of rhetoric going to translate to Republicans being very upset with her and, and want to use this power um that again there will be a lot of legal battles ahead if they went forward with this because you know where do you draw the line on what what the, what is allowed in Wisconsin regarding impeachment and who can be impeached and, and, and those sort of things because you know we just don't have a precedent here to look at so it's all uncharted territory here but it is possible and uh, it's things that will that could be discussed. Now, I do know that Christina van Zelstar reporter today, just interviewed the Senate majority leader on this particular issue. So by the time this podcast runs, we should have his answer on, on what he says in regards to whether or not Republicans are going to move forward w- with impeachment.
0: So we had those candidate uh, uh, elections that were obviously very important in terms of Balance of power. Um, Also, a couple of big items as far as referenda or referendums on the ballot, statewide referendums for voters, and and two in particular questions relating to a topic we've talked about a lot on this podcast, and that is bail reform. Um, And those two. Uh, questions relating to uh giving judges the authority to essentially consider more, consider uh a a, a defendant's harm potential harm to the community, to consider their their violent past. Um, those things were approved by voters pretty overwhelmingly, sixty-seven to sixty-eight percent of uh, voters statewide approved those two, um, which I also find interesting, Jason, because in an election where the uh, you know progressive candidate overwhelmingly won statewide for the Supreme Court, this is an issue that has largely been sponsored by Republicans. While it's had some bipartisan support, it's been largely pushed by Republican authors, and yet it did extremely well at the same time. Uh, what does that tell you about sort of where voters are statewide on this issue? It seems like it's one that uh, that gained widespread support.
1: Yeah. And then we did. I mean, we saw that this was a bipartisan issue in the legislature, too. We had we had uh, members of both parties, you know, Democrats and Republicans, even though the lead sponsors were Republicans. We did see Democrats voting for this, both in the Senate and in, in the Assembly. But we saw, as you mentioned, that 67, 68 percent of voters backed this issue of of changing the Constitution. What's at stake here is right now the Wisconsin Constitution limits what court administrators, what judges can do when they're setting bail. It's that the bail money is to make sure the defendant shows back up in court. Now, this constitutional amendment, which voters have approved, would allow a lot more that the judges, the court administrators who set the bail, can take into account what it calls the totality of the circumstances. So it can consider the violent crimes of, of the of the defendant. They can they can look at, at all of those things when when they're when they're when they're setting bail. Now, a big question moving forward is, well, what is the definition of a violent crime? And uh, the proposed amendment doesn't list them. There are some some state statutes that, that mention violent crime and kind of define that. But uh, what Republicans, what the legislature recently did is they actually sent this to the governor last week. Uh, they approved it beforehand, but last week they sent it to the governor's desk and it's sitting on his go- the governor's desk right now. And it and it and it really defines what is meant by violent crime. So it lists uh, 100 different crimes or, or more than 100 crimes that would qualify as, quote unquote, violent crime. So that includes what you would expect, like homicide and sexual assault, carjacking, uh, but some of the critics are, are really taking aim at, at some of the other things that are listed as violent crime, and that would be um, things like um, uh, watching a, a dogfight or in a, or, or mail fraud, things like that, that according to this bill that went to the governor's desk um, would define those things as, as a violent crime. So that's part part of what this bill is, is trying to clarify that language on what is violent crime. That'll go to the governor. And then another part of this amendment is the use of the word uh, serious harm. Uh, a second constitutional amendment on, on the ballot that voters approved allows courts to set other pre-conviction conditions for release. And Brian, you know the courts better than I. So what are some of those sort of pre the conviction conditions that, that judges can take into account. We, we often talk in, in cases
0: about uh, there, there's the cash bail, but there's also things you must adhere to when you're out on pretrial release, and that might be absolute sobriety. Um, it might be no contact with certain individuals. There might be some other conditions that aren't related to cash, but there are rules you have to follow while you're out on pretrial release. If I understand this correctly, the, the way this was worded, judges can now take those things into consideration if, in fact, it's. Uh, something that is intended to protect the public from serious harm. The question is, what does serious harm mean? It used to say serious bodily harm, but they have exp- serious harm broadens that definition out. It's another one that sort of raises some of that controversy of how wide of a net are you casting here? How many defendants will be caught up in this? And that definition, that's one that's still, that's not defined by statute, if I understand it. Serious harm, without the word bodily in there, has not been. And so I, I do wonder, Jason... This has been sent to the governor. There is a definition the legislature has provided. The governor has yet to sign it. If he doesn't or if he vetoes it, what happens? Because you have an amendment that's been approved, a change in the Constitution approved by the public with a term that's not
1: defined uh, anywhere in state statute. What would happen then? So, well, it could create judicial confusion. So judges would have this constitutional amendment. So that a, it means it is part of the Constitution now that that judges have to take into account these things or, or they can take into account these things when in cases involving serious harm. Um, so so the judges would have to try to either figure it out on their own or. Uh, but what this bill tries to do is this bill that's sitting on the governor's desk is trying to clarify now some of the language in that constitutional amendment that voters passed last night. Uh, and, and so what happens if the governor doesn't sign it well, then it becomes law. So he, he, if he ignores it, if he, if he ignores this bill that's sitting at his desk, then, then it, then it becomes law. But if he vetoes it, then I guess it's back to the drawing board, and maybe Republicans and Democrats are going to have to come together to figure out how to define serious harm as well. Uh, you know, seri- I guess moving forward, that that's the one term that's not in state statute as far as the definition. What does serious harm mean? What this bill says that's on the governor's desk is that serious harm includes things like. Physical or mental pain. It includes death. It can, it includes mental anguish. It also includes property damage or economic losses of more than twenty five hundred dollars. So when you look at that, Brian, uh, the issue of economic losses of twenty five hundred dollars, that would I I guess that would include if somebody stole uh, stole your car, for example, that would cost more than twenty five hundred dollars. Um, and so it covers a lot of theft. Yeah, it covers a lot of
0: theft and and fraud. Really, I I want to wrap it up with this, Jason, because I know you've got to get back to to what you're you're still reporting today on all of these things. But but I want to say I, I I don't think we can understate the significance of that change in the state constitution. You go back to the Waukesha Christmas Parade tragedy, which really elevated that issue to one of the top issues in the state of Wisconsin. Um, it was something that was already being debated, had been for years, but it really elevated it. Now there's been concrete action. Voters ha- have passed this, and it is going to change the way judges are allowed to consider or what they're allowed to consider when they make these these bail recommend or make these uh, bail decisions these bail determinations and and obviously it remains to be seen what the practical implication of that is how this actually plays out but it is a significant change in, in the way that process happens here in the state of Wisconsin
1: Exactly. Yeah, and, it, and like you said, it all it, you know, the imp, it was been it had been in the works, you know, before the Waukesha Christmas parade. But I think there was a lot of attention on that that bail. Daryl Brooks was out on bail. Um, right before the Waukesha Christmas Parade. And so there's a lot of attention on what's going on with the bail system in Wisconsin. I mean, we've seen national debates on, on bail as well, but um, but that really, I think, sparked a lot more people to get interested in this issue. And then we saw with the vote totals, you know, 67, 68 percent of, of the state said, yes, This 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 makes sense uh, for these voters. They want to move forward with, with changing that constitution so judges can take into into account so much more when setting bail.
0: All right, I think that's a good time for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual and have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. And Jason, we don't have Sarah with us today, so she has once again emailed me a question that I'm going to open up now, and we will find out about it together. So here is our off-the-record question from executive producer Sarah Smith. It is, what is something you're afraid to do, but would do for a large sum of money? Oh, wow. Something you're afraid... I feel like that that sort of calls for something like a like bungee <laughs> jumping or something like that. I don't know what it would be, but um, does anything jump out at you? Something you are afraid to do, or maybe you something you just don't think you'd do unless somebody came along and said, "All right," but I've well, got a big sack of cash here, Jason. Come on.
1: <laughs> um, okay, a couple things jump out at me, but not not directly. So so I flew uh, in an F eighteen fighter jet with the Blue Angels and. Uh, so I'm not answering your question. I'm going to get, first of all, I want to give you this answer because I I just, so I flew in an F-18 Super Hornet fighter jet with the Blue Angels. And that was probably the the craziest physical sensation of my life. And I definitely was afraid going going into it, like what was going to happen. I had seen videos, including some people in our market who in the past passed out. Um, flying in these F 18s, when they do these uh, gravitational pulls where the, the G forces just push on your entire body and, uh, and then people just pass out. Um, you know, there's special maneuvers that the pilots teach you to, to withstand those G forces so that you can, you know, you, you pretty much squeeze your entire body and you, you take these uh, breaths and you force the air out, uh, and that helps you to, to be able to stay alert during these uh, gravitational pulls. And, I mean, you're you're going down, you're dropping, you're all the spins. I was terrified going in, like, what's going to happen? Am I going to pass out? Or is something worse going to happen to me? So that was definitely something that, um, that I was afraid of. But at the end of the day, how many times in your entire life do you get to fly in an F-18 fighter jet, right? So I was like, I have to do this. It sounds exhilarating. I, it it was exhilarating. It was, it was emotion. I mean, it was an incredible experience and I'm so grateful for it. And would I do it again? I guess I probably, yeah, I would do it again if you gave me the opportunity. But, um, but at the end of the day, like I was terrified of that, but I'm glad I went through with it because it was so worthwhile to have that experience. And I mean, I know people in the Air Force and in the Navy who never even had that opportunity. And and here I was, uh, just a lowly TV news reporter that uh, was able to, to fly up with them, so I'm so ever grateful for that opportunity. And and you, as you know, my brother's a fighter pilot, and uh, so just to have that sort of common experience with him, um, to be able to talk to him about, well, wow, remember, you know, when I was up in that Blue Angel, and and you know, I felt the force, and I, my, you know, the tunnel vision. So the the blood is rushing out of your head, and so at one point, you know, it's like you can just see, you see the black in your eyes, kind of just overwhelming you and you're almost going to lose consciousness, but then you just, you know, do the maneuvers they teach you and you kind of persevere through it. Um, but that was exhilarating. And now I have that common connection with my, you know, at least something I can relate to with my brother and his experience uh, on a day in basis. He does this every single day for his living, um, protecting the country and all of that. But, uh, but I'm able to at least have that common experience with my brother. So that was something I was terrified of. Um, but, you know, for the right conditions, I was able to do it. Uh, I don't think that necessarily answers the question. I'll come up with one more. Uh, oh, no, I,
0: I I, I, well, what I like is you had you had a, a great story to tell and, and one that I think a lot of people could relate to. Um, I, I, I have to say I, I have a tough time with this question because my wife often tells me you're not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid. Like I'm not afraid to be in front of a crowd. Obviously, I'm not afraid to to, to sing karaoke. I'm not afraid to embarrass myself. Um, I'll I'll go on a zip line and hang upside down with my hands and arms free. That doesn't concern me. That doesn't worry me. I will say um, one thing that, I, that that when I watch videos that I think is utterly terrifying. That I don't think I don't even know if you could pay me enough money to do is the people who do the, like the free bass jumping where they have no, no strings, no cables, no anything, and they are just jumping. They've got maybe like the flying suits or whatever it is, and they're just – that – I watch those videos, and to me that is utterly terrifying. The free fall where you're connected to nothing, you have no parachute, um, and, that, and that's why I don't know that mm-hmm. there's enough money you could give me because money means nothing if you're flat as a pancake. Um, you know, you can't, you, it, money won't help you once, once you've, uh, splatted on the ground. So I, I think that's one that for me is, is really tough, but the question was actually one that you would do only if they paid you a lot of money. And I, so, oh man, maybe I would need, maybe I would have to put some of that money toward like a whole lot of training and psychological preparation to do that. <laughs> but I just, <laughs> I just don't see that happening. Um, that that one that one definitely scares the life out of me and i'm not afraid of much um maybe maybe it's this maybe it's this jason um you ever saw the movie arachnophobia yes okay.
1: yes yes okay if
0: they said you got, got you got yeah if they said if you've got to like s- l- sit in a room and just let tarantulas crawl all over you for 5 minutes that would take an exceptionally large amount of money <laughs> for me to let that happen um <laughs> I, I I that idea of that probably that that might be one of the most terrifying things I can think of. I hate spiders.
1: Maybe not tarantulas because they they're 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 friendly, right? But like I, mean, I guess you'd warm up to. I don't care to if I they're going friendly. To- I don't want them all over <laughs> me. I guess you could warm up that experience by going to the Milwaukee Public Museum and going to the butterfly exhibit and have them fly all over you butterfly kind of warm up to wonderful. They can they I can have a
0: hundred butterflies on me. I don't want three tarantulas. I just there's something okay. about that I that that one would be that that one tests my limit I have to admit.
1: I, I would agree with you Brian like you know and by the way the question was you know what would you what would you be terrified of that you'd do for money. I wasn't definitely not paid for that for the blue angel ride. But uh but I wanted to say yeah I think the bugs thing that, that definitely came to my mind as well. Like I, you know, I, I hate bugs. And so anything regarding bugs would be something that I would uh, definitely avoid unless you're paying me. But I do, I, I, I was in Oaxaca, Mexico. I, I was studying Spanish there for six weeks um, and many years ago. And one of the things that they ate there with chapelina the, the the grasshoppers, right? And And they have little ones, and they have the big ones. And I know that sounds maybe, maybe that sounds gross to some people, but you know, they, it's almost like a beef jerky taste. Like they really do a good job with it. So at the end of the day, yeah, I did try chapalinas in 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 Mexico, and they were they were fine, they were good. But um, I think most people would probably look at a grasshopper and say, I'm I'm not going to eat that. Most most Americans, right? Dead
0: grasshopper on a, over a fire. Maybe uh, you start giving me live insects and we've got a whole nother discussion.
1: Yeah, these these are all completely processed, cooked like like beef jerky. I mean, they're, they're, I, they're I can delicious.
0: handle that. You start doing live stuff. You better get out a big sack of money. Jason, thank you again. Appreciate your time, as always, on the podcast. Thank you, Brian. If you have a topic uh, you would like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate for Fox 6 News, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible, including our editor, Dave Machuda, and executive producer, Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back next week.